Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Poem Peeps. We're back again today with a great episode for you and a discussion with some truly outstanding clinicians that Firf and I are so excited about. Just as a reminder, make sure you rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast and check out our website at www.poempeeps.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Firf, how's your week been? been good it's been great this is our second episode we're recording this week so it's like a treat week for me that we're doing a lot of poem peeps and uh you know always the best part of my day excited to dive in exactly um, and as you said looking forward to today and building on some prior episodes that we've had about mechanical ventilation and today we're going to be focusing on lung and diaphragm protective ventilation and delving into what this means what we know about it and what the future will hold yeah, Mate, I'm really excited for this episode and this discussion. Uh, as listeners will know, we just did a recent episode on VV ECMO and Kara Agerstrand during that had a great line where she said that lung protective ventilation is like love. It, it means something different to everyone, but everybody's trying to do it and have it in their lives. So hopefully we can unravel a little bit of that mystery uh, here today. Definitely. And we have two fantastic guests joining us today to help us talk more about this. And first we have Jose Dianti. Jose is a clinical and research fellow at the University of Toronto and University Health Network. He completed his residency in, in critical care and worked as a critical care attending previously at the Hospital Italiano in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He's particularly interested in ventilator-induced lung injury and personalized ventilation strategies. Jose, welcome so much to Poem Peeps. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Our pleasure to have you. Uh, our next guest today is Ewan Gallagher. Ewan is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and the University Health Network. He completed his internal medicine critical care training at University of Toronto as well as his PhD. He's a world-renowned researcher in the mechanisms of ventilator-induced lung and diaphragm injury, has over 140 publications, and some of them are some of the most cited articles in the field. His lab is actually involved in multiple trials in this area, and it is an absolute pleasure to have him on the show today. Welcome to Poem Peeps, Ewan. Uh, thank you very much, Dave. It's a real pleasure to join. Before we go any further, just a quick reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes. The topics we discuss aren't for specific patient care uh, without the details, and our views don't necessarily affect the views of our respective employers. Uh, but with that out of the way, let's dive in. Uh, so there are a lot of specific factors that may play into these questions that we're going to be talking about, uh, but we're going to try and give a broad overview. Uh, and in that sense, I'm going to sort of specify in advance that mostly what we're focusing on is a discussion of lung and diaphragm protective ventilation for patients who have acute hypoxemic respiratory failure or ARDS and are requiring invasive mechanical ventilation. So Jose, we've discussed lung protective ventilation on the show in a few different episodes, uh, but I think it's really important to that we define the problem before we kind of go forward. So can you broadly tell us what we're referring to when we talk about ventilator-induced lung injury or VILI? And what type of damage is done to the lung from mechanical ventilation? Yeah, sure. Uh, so thanks, Dave. So, so VILI or ventilator-induced lung injury mainly refers to injury to the lungs by over-distension, basically, when we apply positive pressure ventilation to the lungs. So contrary to during normal spontaneous breathing, mechanical ventilation actually inflates the lungs, positive pressure mechanical ventilation inflates the lungs from within, and this generates a positive transponary pressure gradient, which inflates lung again. And this excessive transponary pressure is what leads to lung overextension and ultimately ventilator-induced lung injury, which could manifest not only as local lung injury, which could worsen gas exchange and whatnot, but can potentially also lead to systemic injury and inflammation and ultimately to death or higher mortality. 
thanks so much for reviewing that, Jose. And, you know, I think it's a, a great point you said, not only local, but can have some systemic implications. And while we've talked about ventilator-induced lung injury and lung protective ventilation a bunch, I don't think we've ever specifically talked about protecting the diaphragm. And I think something both um, you and Ewan are so um, invested about. So Ewan, what type of injury happens to the diaphragm during mechanical ventilation? Well, I can't tell you how much joy it brings me that you're finally talking about protecting the diaphragm. Um, but I'm uh, not being a little facetious, but I, I think this is getting more and more attention as something that we want to, that we want to think about at the bedside. You know, basically there's, there's uh, three or four um, hypothesized mechanisms of diaphragm injury with varying degrees of strength of evidence behind them. Probably the most important is very simply the atrophy of the diaphragm that happens when it's, when it's no longer being used. You know, you intubate it, somebody, you sedate them, and the diaphragm gets its first ever vacation, stops contracting. And, you know, what's impressive is that over the next few days, patients can lose as much as 30 to 40% of diaphragm muscle mass, so-called disuse atrophy. So it's really a very profound, rapid uh, atrophy um, as a consequence of disuse. Uh, but the diaphragm can also be injured by excessive loading. Um, and um, if you uh, force the muscle to contract above and beyond uh, its kind of fatigue resistant limits, particularly whenever it's already somewhat injured and inflamed from say systemic illness like sepsis, then it's actually quite vulnerable to, to load induced injury. And this has been demonstrated pretty convincingly in animal models. And, you know, as yet we don't have great human data to confirm this, just sort of tentative signals. But uh, excess loading of the muscle, particularly if, uh, if the muscle is forced to contract as lung volume is decreasing, say during certain types of dyssynchrony, or if the ventilator um, inspiratory cycle ends too quickly and the diaphragm is still contracting while the ventilator cycles into expiration, now you've got a muscle that's contracting while it's being forced to lengthen, and that can be very injurious, just like you know, your first time out skiing every winter where your quadriceps are, you know, killing you the next day because you've been doing these kind of eccentric or lengthening contractions with every turn on your skis. So it's the same kind of phenomenon in the diaphragm. So we think these may be some of the key mechanisms of injury to the diaphragm during mechanical ventilation. That's so interesting. Uh, next time I go skiing, which will be the first time this year, I feel like I'm going to fall because I'll be thinking about that now. <laughs> like I'm lengthening against this. What's happening? Uh, no, that, that's super fascinating. And I think something that we should all be thinking about a lot more. Um, to that end, Jose, I'm going to go to you about like why we want are spending so much time thinking about this. And really what we're focused on are sort of what are the consequences of ventilator-induced lung injury and of diaphragm injury or dysfunction that happens from mechanical ventilation. And I'm also curious if they manifest differently clinically or if we uh, see different phenotypes that come out from the end for these patients. So generally I would say it's very clear that really leads to increased mortality, uh, mainly as we mentioned before because of this systemic inflammation and, and what's kind of like termed biotrauma, which is uh, this concept described by, by Dr. Tremblay and Professor Slatsky some time ago, which is kind of like this old ICU dash that pa patients with ARDS or respiratory failure die from multi-organ dysfunction and not from just hypoxemia. So there's something else that's going on. And, and I think that's pretty clear. And I don't think a lot of people would, would doubt that. In, 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 as a matter of fact, one of the only strategies clinical like therapeutic strategies that we can apply in the ICU that has like really, really good evidence in terms of decreasing mortality 
is to actually apply low tidal volume, low transponary pressure ventilation to reduce mortality. So, so the, I think that the link between VLE and mortality is, is quite clear, and I, I don't think there's much doubt that that might be the case. There might, there is no evidence that diaphragm dysfunction itself, either atrophy or or, or hypertrophy or, or or by either mechanism that you one just mentioned, can directly lead to multi-organ dysfunction. Say there, there's not such evidence, but it is associated uh, in large cohorts such such as like you one's probably initial and larger study on the subject, where they show that ventilator-induced diaphragm dysfunction can lead to prolonged mechanical ventilation. Uh, increased need for ICU readmission. There, there are studies that, that show that muscle weakness measured by, by the maximum inspiratory pressure, so probably not the best surrogate, but some sort of muscle weakness uh, at the end of mechanical ventilation is associated with mortality even after one year. So there, there is some degree of muscle dysfunction that sort of can linger on and, and is associated with mortality, but probably the, the relationship is not as kind of straightforward, I would say. Uh, so I would say that's how they probably manifest differently. It is possible that we just don't have enough evidence regarding ventilator-induced uh, diaphragm uh, dysfunction so far. Uh, but yeah, that's what I would say regarding that. Thanks so much, Jose. I want to um, talk a little bit more about a discussion on lung protective ventilation and diaphragm protective ventilation independently. So you and I know that you've done so many great studies, many of them with Jose, both prospectively and in large review of um, ARDS trials, looking at lung protective settings and specifically which factors are most important. And, you know, um, Dave and I, on a prior roundtable discussion, we talked about PEEP, tidal volume, driving pressure, and esophageal manometry. But one factor we haven't touched um, on is mechanical power. And I'm wondering if you could tell us, you know, how do you view mechanical power and what are the main factors that impact it? Thanks, Christina. So I would say mechanical power is a beautiful idea. Um, the idea being that you can use the first principles of physics to unify all the mechanisms of ventilator-induced lung injury into one relatively simple quantity. I think when Luciano Gattinoni and others first started talking about this, they basically derived the equation for mechanical power from physics, the idea being that the, the energy you transfer into the respiratory system is responsible for causing tissue damage. And so all of the different factors that increase that energy transfer will contribute to tissue injury. So you know, traditionally we've, we've really focused on tidal volume, but there are other important components to, to the energy transfer. So it's not only tidal volume, it's also driving pressure it's not only the tidal phenomena, it's also the frequency um, and mechanical power uh, includes resistive energy as well. So airway resistance as a consequence of uh, each uh, ventilated delivered breath. So it tries to unite all these quantities into one number. And in theory, if, you know, if the theory was true, if mechanical power was the kind of sum total determinant of ventilator just lung injury, then in any given patient, you could optimize the mechanical power. And what's so interesting is that depending on the patient's physiological characteristics, in some patients, you can optimize power more by reducing rate. And in others, you optimize power more by reducing tidal volume and driving pressure. And so it really would lead to significant change in the way we tailor ventilator settings if the theory was true. You know, um, I think there's some problems with the idea. The, the big one being is actually nobody's totally sure how to compute power exactly. There's multiple different ways of computing it. 
Some people, for example, include the energy transferred from maintaining lung inflation with PEEP. Others, like myself, are quite skeptical that that's mechanistically relevant. I don't think the energy dissipated to overcome airway resistance impacts on lung tissue all that much. Um, and I think probably the best study in the subject was published by Eduardo Costa and Marcelo Mato last year, where they showed that, yeah, respiratory frequency probably is relevant and driving pressure is definitely relevant. But when you account for those factors, then all the other factors, uh, specifically tidal volume and, and resistance, seem less, less important um, in determining outcomes. So there is a role for thinking about respiratory rate when we're trying to protect the lung. But to be honest with you, you get... In most patients, you get way more bang for your buck by turning down the tidal volume to reduce the driving pressure. And so I don't think we need to make things so complicated by uh, refocusing on mechanical power. That's that's my take on the topic. Thanks so much, Ewan. I'm so glad that we're bringing up things that you find so much joy um, in talking about. And I want to extend a little bit um, on some of the comments that you just said. And I know that we brought up some factors regarding mechanical power and how that can affect ventilator-induced lung injury. And you mentioned some variables already that you that you look at, specifically tidal volume, and you just mentioned respiratory rate. But when you're seeing a, a new patient that's intubated, what are other things that you may look at to determine their risk for ventilator-induced lung injury? And a follow-up question I guess I'll ask now as well is, are there any of the variables that you think are more important for saying which patients are at risk compared to others? Yeah, those are really fascinating questions. You know, it's not really something we do at the bedside so much thinking about risk stratification around ventilators, lung injury. Um, but I do think this may be the way of the future. So I think, first of all, I think we all have a kind of both scientific and kind of clinical intuition that a lung that's already inflamed and injured is going to be more vulnerable to ventilator-induced lung injury than uh, one that's not. And I have seen some uh, kind of, I would say, small-scale studies and analyses suggesting that certain markers, biological markers of lung injury might predict, for example, the f- impact of lung protective ventilation on outcome, which basically means that the biological markers reflect a mechanism that's modifying how much the patient is at risk for, for VILI. Um, one physiological parameter that I'm now like totally persuaded is critical is uh, compliance or um, the way we we like to uh, compute it as respiratory system elastance. So last year, or I guess actually two years ago now, time flies, we published this paper looking at uh, respiratory system elastance in, pre- in trials of lower versus higher tidal volume. And what the, the data sh- show, and, and I can t- honestly tell you that we pushed on this data as hard as we could uh, to make sure that, that the signal was real is that there's a huge difference in the impact of lowering tidal volume and mortality between a patient with low elastance versus a patient with high elastance. So, you know, in the original ARMA trial, which was probably the the largest trial, including in this data set, um, if a patient was on 12 mils per kilo, had 12 mils per kilo, was randomized to high tidal volume, but their driving pressure was still less than 15 because their elastance was so low, there was no mortality difference between 12 and six. Whereas patients with high elastance, um, many of whom at 12 mils per kilo, you know, had plateau pressures in the 40s and 50s and driving pressures well over 25 or 30, they had a huge mortality benefit from, from reducing tidal volume. So probably the, the, the biggest determinant of whether you're at risk for a villi is, is the size of the baby lung, which is really what elastance is telling you about. 
patients the high elastins have a small baby lung and are, are way more at risk from the use of high tidal volumes. So I, I think of this as the most important parameter. Now at the bedside, I, what I think this means is basically adjusting the tidal volume to, to keep a safe driving pressure is probably the way to mitigate the risk of ventilator-induced lung injury. And that's really the, the strategy that we're putting to the test now in, uh, in clinical trials. So that's what I would say is probably the most important, uh, these probably the two most important mechanical variables to say which patients are at risk for VILI. I'm sure in the future we'll discover as well that there are biological subphenotypes who are more at risk, et cetera. And I think that will also be very informative. Thank you so much, Ian. It's just fascinating. And and I love how you say how you kind of like pushed on the data, look at it. And I think so much of the research you've done is really interesting to me because there's these trials and we learn a lot from them. And then there's probably still more we can mine out of them. And I think that's a really, uh, it's just a, a great technique and a helpful tool for all of us to keep advancing the knowledge. Jose, I want to ask you about some other factors. So you had mentioned a lot of things that were about sort of uh, the inherent uh, static and dynamic factors of the respiratory system. But I know we also talk a lot about respiratory drive and vent synchrony, which have to do with sort of the patient and their uh, sedation status and their uh, uh, their inherent respiratory triggers for breathing. And this is something I think is a lot harder to monitor and something that we kind of talk about a little bit less, unfortunately. So what do you think are like the most helpful variables and the most helpful tools for monitoring patient synchrony, uh, one, and patient respiratory drive, two? That's a great question. Thanks, Dave. So I think that the complexity of a lung and diaphragm protective approach, or, or even just a, a lung protective approach during spontaneous ventilation, is that you don't, you're not only concerned about the magnitude of the effort to maintain some sort of diaphragm activity to prevent atrophy, while also keeping it within a certain limit to prevent this kind of like excessive efforts that you would mention, but you also care about how those efforts transformative pressure which would in turn affect the lung so it's kind of like this two-pronged thing that you have to care about and that's why probably just staying with respiratory drive which could kind of like physiologically just mean like the neural out the, the, the neural response let's say from your brainstem is probably not the main thing you're worried or i'm worried at the bedside i would say because what you really care about in terms of lung and diaphragm protection is what what that output is right and that would depend among other things, about how much strength your diaphragm or your respiratory muscles can put out, right? So a very good marker of respiratory drive, such as like a non-invasive marker, such as P.1, for instance, which is the, the pressure in the first 100 milliseconds of an inspiration, right? It's a, it's a physiologically a good surrogate, or we think, of respiratory drive, but that, that doesn't necessarily provide direct information of how that pressure is applied to the lungs and the diaphragm, right? There is some, some data that suggests that above certain thresholds of people in one, they do kind of like accurately detect excessive effort. So you can, you can use people in one to that approach, but there's not a single number that you can use to kind of like get an, an, an idea of the magnitude of that output, right? So I would say the gold standard for actually measuring that output and also actually measuring the transponary pressure or the pressure applied to the lungs while delivering spontaneous breaths during mechanical ventilation is using esophageal manometry. Uh, basically, that implies putting an, an esophageal balloon, which gives you a, a surrogate measure of the pleural pressure. And with that, you will get the pleural pressure swings or the transdiaphragmatic pressure, if, if, you, if you prefer, which would be a, a measurement of the magnitude of the respiratory effort itself. And then you would say, OK, let's keep the, this effort within a certain limit. 
a recent statement uh, on lung and diaphragm bronchitis ventilation said that limit should probably be somewhere between three and 10, three and 15 centimeters of water. Again, not like super good evidence on why that is, uh, on what that's based, but, but that's a, a fair approximation, I would say. And the other one is to understand what the actual transponary pressure is as a consequence of both the ventilator delivered breath and how much effort the patient's making. So esophageal manometry gives you information about both. And it also gives you information about synchrony because it's probably the best way to know when the patient's triggering the breath, how synchronous it is with the actual ventilator delivered breath, et cetera, right? So I would say that would be the gold standard. Unfortunately, that is invasive, slightly, but, but invasive. We put NGs in patients all the time, but Fair enough. This is not the most common thing to use. And you do need some sort of specific equipment and some sort of idea of how to actually do it because it requires some titration in terms of how do you inflate the balloon and, and whatnot that make it a bit more, I wouldn't say complex, but 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 not super straightforward. Uh, a third variable that I, that I do use a lot in my clinical practice and, and we use it pretty often in, in, in some of our studies is the, the POCC or POC or the occlusion pressure at end expiration, which is basically the, um, an occluded inspiration during, so let's say, an inspiration by the patient during an expiratory hold, right? So you do an expiratory hold and you just wait for the patient to take their own, their own breath, the next, the next breath. You don't tell the patient you're gonna do that to try to maintain it uh, as uh, agnostic as you can for, for that measurement. And then that kind of gives you an idea of what the actual scene if you have had an esophageal balloon in and you have measured the, the deflection in pleural pressure. There are some differences with the, with the esophageal, uh, the actual pleural pressure because there's, there's chest wall mechanics uh, differences between a breathing against an, a closed valve and an open valve. So there are some differences. But again, you want to, and Michele Bertoni, who used to be a research fellow here at, at UHN, actually published a very nice paper where they showed that uh, applying some correction factors to that actual number, the POCC number you get, you can get a, a fair good, fairly good ex estimation of the actual uh, esophageal pressure swing. And with that, you can also calculate the actual pressure applied to the lung. So you can get kind of like both of the good things you can get with esophageal manometry with a, a non-invasive measurement that you can readily do at the bedside. And it's fairly simple to, to perform. So that's those... Those three would be the, the three ways I kind of like uh, approach measuring effort and transponder pressure at the bedside, yeah. Thanks so much, Jose. I think that's great. And I love that you point out the things that we can do either with invasive, semi-invasive with the esophageal manometry, but just on the vent. Like I know P0.1 had sort of a heyday and then kind of fell out of popularity and now is coming back. And it, I love using the tools that are already at our disposal. Um, so now kind of for both of you, just maybe the major question, we basically have already touched on this, but I think one thing is that we're always trying to apply these very complex topics at the bedside simply to one patient. And, and you and you kind of already said that sort of your main thing is just trying to use tidal volume to get people in a safe driving pressure, um, even though it may affect people differentially. But I'm just curious if there are other strategies you think are really important to apply to your patient at the bedside to make sure that they have lung uh, protective ventilation. Yeah, I, th I really think the the single most important target is the lung stress or the lung distending pressure. And it's hard for me to conceive of a way that the lung is at risk of injury when that pressure is safely limited, you know, because really ventilators lung injury is a tissue stress phenomenon. 
Now, obviously, how you how much you should adjust PEEP to recruit lung to reduce that stress and strain versus how much you can turn down the tidal volume to limit driving pressure in the face of a respiratory acidosis. These are all the real physiological challenges that clinicians face the competing considerations. But to me, the one central unifying target is to limit lung distending pressure. And I think probably the area where we can do that uh, significantly better than we already are is when patients are breathing spontaneously. Because in most of the time when patients are breathing spontaneously, clinicians are not attending to how much force those efforts apply to the lungs. So we're not attending to the lung distending pressure during spontaneous breathing. And as you know, the airway driving pressure no longer reflects the true lung distending pressure during spontaneous breathing. So this is why these simple non-invasive parameters that Jose just mentioned, P0.1, and especially I think the expiratory occlusion pressure are so fundamentally useful um, to assessing how much is the lung being stretched and stressed. Uh, is, a, is the patient making respiratory efforts? Are they excessive? And how much is the lung being stressed as a consequence? So to me, like in my, my practice at the bedside, I'm simply trying to assess lung stress with the driving pressure, but part of my driving pressure assessment is are the, is the patient distending the lung with large respiratory efforts as well? And if so, then you have to decide what to do about it. And that becomes a challenging question that we're hoping to answer in, in ongoing clinical trials. Great. And I think we've had such a great conversation so far and really talking about the lungs and, um, you know, ventilator-induced lung injury and how to prevent that. But I'm really um, interested in going back to the diaphragm and talking about diaphragm-protective ventilation. And Jose, I know um, you and told us about which factors are the most telling for looking at lung injury, but I'm wondering if you can comment on what variables you think play the biggest role in determining the risk for diaphragm injury. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so so building up on, on the three or four mechanisms that you one mentioned on how the diaphragm is injured, I would say the, the number one thing would be to, of number one and two things would be to consider how much effort the, the diaphragm is making or how much force it is producing to try to keep it within a certain range. Because the two, the one, the most likely mechanism for diaphragm injury is diaphragm disuse atrophy, right? So not moving the diaphragm basically. So ideally you should keep the diaphragm moving up to a certain degree. How much that is, again, not a lot of good quality evidence. We think something above three centimeters of water of, of pressure generated by the, by the diaphragm would probably suffice to keep the diaphragm active and to prevent atrophy. That would sort of relate to you and I, well, not you and I because we're talking about a, a healthy individual breathing at rest, something like that. They would have an esophageal pressure swing between 3 and 10, 3 and 15. So any, anywhere within that range would probably be safe or possibly be safe i would say i want to be very cautious because we don't have like super good data on how to base this but uh or yeah yeah uh, base this is probably the word sorry but uh but i would say that's probably the most important approach that you can take right because we think that for sure atrophy sorry this use atrophy but also making large efforts that will lead to uh an excessive uh, force applied to diaphragm might be injurious uh, a third possible mechanism, as you mentioned, would be that of a, some asynchronous uh, during mechanical ventilation that might lead to eccentric contractions of the diaphragm. So basically, uh, um, some asynchronous that would 
triggered event while the diaphragm is uh, relaxing, and then the diaphragm will have to kind of like again tense again and have a new contraction that might lead to more injury. So the third approach would be preventing venti patient ventilation desynchrony would probably be a, a good thing to target, I would say. Again, with probably less data or less evidence than, than the two most important ones that would be to keep it within a certain range that it's not too small of an effort or too large of an effort, basically. That would be my take on that. You know, if I could just uh, jump in and add add one one additional point, you know, one of the th one of the, the actually one of the few things that in our data we found really predicts the risk of diaphragm atrophy is the baseline diaphragm thickness. So most patients who developed atrophy in our study had a very high diaphragm thickness at baseline, and patients who came in with a thin diaphragm already tended to have stable thickness over time. We don't totally understand the mechanisms, obviously, um, but you know it seems like if you have a bulky diaphragm to begin with, that's the kind of diaphragm that's at risk for losing um, muscle mass. So these even simple ultrasound measurements seem to be useful at predicting the risk of, of diaphragm atrophy during mechanical ventilation. That's really helpful. We have um, a visiting professor here right now, Boris Young, who's been been teaching our faculty to do diaphragm ultrasound. Uh, and it's you know if you have the time and availability to it, and somebody shows you, it's you're like you said, it's simple. Like you have all the tools that you're using already in the ICU. So uh, hopefully one day it's like built into our algorithm of thinking about people. Uh, so you know, I want to again, and we're always moving from these really interesting findings that you guys have have seen and described to the practical strategies, and so. This is probably not a fair question because every version of vent desynchrony requires a, a different sort of technique to solve it. But I'm curious of, uh, if there are techniques or tools on the ventilator that you think are helpful to get the appropriate loading on the diaphragm that Jose was talking about, right? So that you're not straining it and that you're, you're not having it uh, strain against a, a lung that's losing volume. Are, are there go-to techniques with your ventilator that you can do to try to get into a diaphragmatic protective zone? Yeah, so you know, I think the the most important intervention is just starting to measure respiratory effort in some way, shape, or form, and that you know, right now is not really routine clinical practice in most centers. In our in our center, every patient has respiratory effort assessed by PIOC and P point one every twelve hours at least, um, and it's part of our RT's culture. They'll actually set the ventilator. They'll set the ventilator to uh, actually not with a specific effort level in mind, but, but sort of noting and attending to whether the patient's, you know, effort is excessive or whether they're breathing at all. And I think the, the reason that monitoring respiratory effort with these techniques, these simple techniques so powerful is that, first of all, it draws your attention to the fact that often the patients aren't breathing and you don't even realize it. And it's funny, you know, on rounds this morning, we had a patient in, in ventilated in pressure support being with a, with a rate of around 20 uh, breaths per minute. And when the RT went in and had measured PIOC, it was zero. And the patient wasn't breathing at all. It was just auto-triggering. But you, you don't uncover these kinds of things where you think the patient's breathing and they're not if you're not actually assessing respiratory drive and effort. So, you know, I think the, the single most important thing you can do to protect the diaphragm is actually just starting to pay attention to whether it's contracting or not. With, with these techniques. And then I think once you recognize, okay, the patient's not breathing, what can we do to, to get the patient breathing? Well, obviously, um, weaning sedation is tolerated. This is good motivation to wean sedation. 
And then also just making sure that the, the, the rate on the ventilator is not higher than the patient's own intrinsic rate. A lot of patients don't breathe on the ventilator just because the ventilator is cycling more frequently than their brain is. And so it's important. I constantly try to encourage our RTs to reduce the respiratory rate to get the patient breathing uh, because as soon as the patient's rate exceeds the ventilators, well, then they'll trigger every breath. And that just getting to that point, I think, is a, is a major win. So sometimes it's very difficult to get a patient breathing because they're so sick or unstable. But a lot of the time we can get patients breathing. And then once they are breathing, then obviously that is about titrating the ventilatory support, the sedation to make sure the effort is adequate and then potentially to avoid, you know, extremely excessive efforts. So that that's the basic approach. Um it can feel complicated, especially when you're not used to doing it. And, you know, Jose spent two years doing the landmark trial that, that he published it last summer, basically trying to do that in relatively sick patients. And quite a bit of the time, often it's, it's not totally feasible because the patients will transition from not breathing at all to breathing like a fish out of water. Um, and in getting them into that sweet spot of optimal effort is probably very challenging when patients are sick. So that's something we continue to work on. But, you know, that's the main barrier to, to diaphragm protection is just getting the muscle active and then active at the right level. That's amazing. And I, I really like that process, too, because I feel like we also always have this goal of trying to get on less sedation, trying to have patients be awake and mobile. And, and these things kind of go hand in hand. Like, can you safely do that for their lungs or, or are they in a period where you can't do that? So that, that was a really helpful perspective. That's great, Ewan. And I really liked, and I think it's just a pearl, you know, I think something that we we try to make inherent to teaching with trainees is, you know, setting the rate on the ventilator, as you and as you mentioned, you know, making sure it's not higher than the intrinsic rate. Um, I think sometimes people forget to do that. So I'm glad that you really brought that up and glad that you you talked through some things that we we can do um, actually on the ventilator itself to to help prevent injury. But Jose, I'm, I'm wondering, wondering if you have any other things to add beyond that. Um, you know, aside from the ventilator itself, what else can we do for diaphragm protection? And I think specifically, you know, Ferf and I were wondering about your thoughts about, you know, partial neuromuscular blockade. That's a very interesting and I think relevant and important question right now. Um, well, we actually in this uh, in this study that you one mentioned the landmark uh, trial, um, we actually tried to by titrating inspiratory pressure, PEEP, and sedation, and and even some ECLS settings, which you can discuss. We tried to achieve these lung and diaphragm protective targets, but when we couldn't do it, we at the end of the study did this uh, very short-lived approach that were just gave us very uh, small voluses of uh, of cisatracurium. Uh, uh, to try to achieve partial neuromuscular blockade with the goal of uh, those patients in which just sedation is not enough, basically, to control respiratory efforts, trying to deliver some some degree of uh, of a partial or low-dose neuromuscular blockade to control the, the, the magnitude of the effort. What we found in this study is that in all patients in which we applied this strategy, they, they, they were all in target, so we could get them breathing spontaneously within our pre-specified target. So we, it worked, let's say, uh, to to control that, and I think that it's it's a it's a a very interesting technique. We're uh, actually running a study right now where we're trying to ap- apply that strategy during a more prolonged period of time and in a continuous infusion manner as uh, for twenty four hours. There's a, an initial seminal paper by Dr. Hanks and and uh, Herod de Vries. Uh, 
published in the in the blue some sometime like five or six years ago where they actually applied this strategy in, in probably healthier patients and they show that in the initial 24 hours you could keep them within a certain range that they decided so it's i would say it's feasible and it does make a lot of sense because it would be the same rationale as okay we apply when we apply sedation to control the magnitude of respiratory breath well i think this is just an arab tool in the toolbox to help you achieve that and it's feasible to do it and uh, and, and we haven't seen any patient not tolerating it in the sense that that I think that I think that the, the word partial or low dose neuromuscular blade has has kind of bad rep, but I think it's sort of kind of misunderstood because we think of awake patients being paralyzed, and this is definitely not the case. It's just sedated patients that instead of giving them full paralysis, you just give them half the dose basically. So instead of getting the good things and the bad things of paralysis in terms of no movement, well, you ideally get only the good things because they are moving their diaphragm, right? So uh, I think it's definitely a feasible technique, yeah. More answers to come. Glad to hear that it's running through. So we've talked a lot about which patients are benefiting this and sort of one of the themes is just that not all patients are the same. We try to use these strategies to be as protective as possible. Uh, you and you mentioned a couple predictive factors already, you know, diaphragm thickness, you mentioned for diaphragm protection, you mentioned how uh, respiratory system elastins can often be predictive of who's going to respond to protection. I'm curious if there are any other major predictors, but also like, how do you apply these clinically? Do you think they should be applied prospectively in trials? Like, should we start thinking about these patients up front and randomizing them differently or managing them differently to get the most bang for our buck? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no question that um, I think the era of trying to do one size fits all interventions for critically ill patients is sort of increasingly behind us. I think we've just seen too many times really good ideas not work because we're not figuring out which patients really benefit from them and, and which don't. So um, I know the trials that I'm involved in, there's a lot of time and thought in going into how we can stratify randomization and how we can build statistical models that allow us to, to, to detect differences in treatment effect and then tailor interventions according to patients' physiological characteristics. And just as one example, um, we're, we're launching a, a randomized trial uh, around the world of uh, driving pressure versus uh, tidal volume strategy. And that, that whole trial's design is premised on, the, on dividing the patients with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure into those with low elastins and those with high elastins. And in the high elastance group, a driving pressure targeted strategy will tend to lower tidal volume further than the traditional six mils per kilo, because in order to get the driving pressure down to 15, you have to get the tidal volume down further. But the interesting thing is that in low elastance patients, targeting driving pressure will actually usually allow you to increase the tidal volume. And, I, and what we think, you know, either, so maybe there's not going to be much effect on ventilator-induced lung injury, but those patients may not be at high risk for ventilator-induced lung injury to begin with. And really what you're doing by lowering tidal volume in those patients is you're having to sedate them more aggressively to prevent them from making large respiratory efforts and increasing their tidal volume. And so maybe by allowing higher tidal volumes in low elastance patients, we can wean sedation faster and liberate people from the ventilator faster. So the, the intervention, the idea is the intervention is beneficial potentially in both, both uh, groups, 
but for different reasons and by different mechanisms. And so the, the trial design tries to account for that by stratifying the, the analytical model as well as the randomization by, uh, by the baseline elastins. So that's just one example. You know, we have colleagues in the UK and elsewhere who are thinking hard about how to incorporate, you know, Carolyn Calfee's done amazing work with subphenotypes. And the question is, you know, how do we estimate and assess those in real time to incor incorporate them into trial design? It's a challenging problem, but that's what people are really working on now. That's fascinating. Can't wait to see that trial. <laughs> That's great. We're all going to be waiting for the results of that. And um, you and you just kind of brought up, you know, the, the concept of phenotyping and endotyping. And Jose, I want to go to you now just for an additional question. So do you think that there are any factors outside of the respiratory mechanics that may impact the lung or diaphragm protective strategies that are being used? So, so yeah, yeah, so I think that one of the most important determinants along with respiratory mechanics, it's, uh, it's dead space or, or abnormalities in gas exchange that might lead to high CO2 and, and low pH, because that is one of the potentially most important drivers of uh, high respiratory drive, just to be redundant on that word. Uh, that I think that the main issue there in terms of like phenotyping is that it's not super straightforward to measure that space uh, in the ICU. Uh, there are some attempts to use like kind of like some standard formula or, or even the, the ventilator iteration has been proposed, but it's probably not a measure of just that space, but other stuff in terms of abnormal gas exchange. So so I don't know how, how kind of like widely applicable and generalizable, if that's a word. If not, I just made it up. Uh, that That is... But I do think that along with mechanics, abnormalities in gas exchange, namely CO2 exchange, is uh, probably one of the most important determinants of uh, effort and therefore one, might potentially be also one of the potential treatments to it, right? To that end, and this is kind of like outside of your question, but in, in, again, we also tried in, in this other study along many interventions, we did try in patients who were already receiving a VV ECMO we tried a kind of like this third approach where we just increase the CO2 clearance by the machine without changing sedation or PEEP or inspiratory pressure. And just that intervention was probably the most important one in terms of how much uh, effort, it, how like effort reduction, right? So just by reducing that ventilatory burden from the lungs, so the necessity of the lungs to eliminate CO2 because we just put them on the machine, just that single intervention, which is as simple as turning an off in that case, significantly reduced effort in actually every patient. Uh, and that goes to show that, that CO2 and that space probably play, play a, like a very, very big role in this, uh, in, in this paradigm, right? That's great, Jose. Thank you so much for, for offering that insight. And this has been such an amazing session so far. And I know we've touched on um, so many topics that both you and Ewan have published on in the past. And I think Ewan, right before you joined, Jose was just saying that y'all have like 600 um, studies coming up and y'all are both so busy. But I'm just wondering if you can um, tell us about some of the future work that you're working on, maybe sharing one to two things that you think can can help us conceptualize and care for patients and prevent lung and diaphragm injury. So uh, you and I'll, I'll start with you first. Um, I know you already mentioned one of your current global studies that you're working on, but anything else that you wanna share? Yeah, thanks. So I would say there's two interventions that we're studying that um, could be very, I think very interesting um, to advance this area. And as probably has kind of become clear throughout our conversation, the fundamental challenge of lung and diaphragm protective ventilation 
is controlling respiratory effort, not too little and not too much. Getting the patient breathing, but then making sure that they're not breathing so much that they're stressing their lung and injuring it. That's, that's the basic challenge. And that's the challenge that we really ran into with Jose's work, which is, like I mentioned, the patients are either not breathing at all or breathing way too much. So the so we're studying now a couple of new interventions that we think might allow us more direct control over respiratory efforts. So one of one of them is uh, as a phase uh, one trial of, of phrenic neurostimulation, working with uh, an industry partner who's developed a technique for continuous phrenic neurostimulation. And, and the, the device is designed so essentially it will stimulate the diaphragm when uh, the patient's uh, not breathing. And then as soon as the patient starts breathing, it shuts off. So the idea is that you never have a, a quiescent diaphragm, but that breath by breath, the diaphragm contracts in synchrony, whether because of the patient's endogenous drive or because of this machine's exogenous stimulation. So I think that's a very exciting intervention. And the beauty of it is that you have more direct control over how much the diaphragm is contracting. Uh, when, when, you know, in the very early phase of the illness, when the patients are very sick and it's hard to control. And then uh, work, you know, on, on the platform trial, which this driving pressure trial I mentioned is being launched as part of a broader platform trial of, of interventions for acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. One of our colleagues here, whom you know, you'll know well, Eddie Fan, along with Neil Ferguson and uh, colleagues in Australia are studying uh, the use of early ECMO to facilitate uh, ventilator liberation and the and the critical idea behind that intervention is that um, you know it's going to reduce the respiratory drive so you can maintain lung protective ventilation while getting the patient awake and moving and so on so that so these are basically just different ways of trying to control effort and um, and maintain safe conditions for the lung and the diaphragm while advancing care for the patient. Thanks so much, Ewan. That's awesome. And I know, um, again, anxiously going to be awaiting the results of, of your work with that. And um, Jose, I'll go to you next. Um, you know, one to two studies are concepts that you're working on this year that you think are most exciting. Uh, yeah, so we're working uh, on a, actually a secondary analysis of this uh, kind of large study where we applied many interventions to achieve lung and diaphragm protection, where we're trying to disentangle exactly how these might interact with each other, kind of like to resemble what we do in clinical practice, because again, we never spend three hours inside of a patient's room just like changing pressure support and then changing PEEP and then changing sedation like there, right? We, we usually do some things at the same time or we try it sec sequentially and whatnot. So the, the idea will be to get all this data where we actually have what happened. We have the, the actual data of what happens after we made, made, it, made each change, basically, and then see how this all those uh, interventions interact with each other uh, and which one is more efficient, which one is less efficient, w which one works better combined with what with another one. So let's say how pressure support changes might interact with the dose of sedatives and whatnot. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's a study that uh, it's at the end of being a com almost completely analyzed and should be coming out recently, uh, shortly. Uh, and then I would say the, the other Study which I, which that I'm running that that I like, let's say, is more of a kind of like a epidemiological approach on how how pressure applied to the vents during spontaneous breaths might potentially injure the lung more than non-spontaneous breaths. So basically, following this concept that you once said that 
we usually go with driving pressure, but during spontaneous breaths, we know that driving pressure is not a good surrogate of actual lung stress. And to see if the actual pressure applied to the lung, and we measure that with, with this non-invasive measurement, POCC, for which, as you mentioned, we have measurements uh, for patients daily. And to see if this actually the transparent pressure during spontaneous breathing might potentially be more injurious, suggesting that, okay, we do have to keep patients breathing within a certain range of effort or transparent pressure to prevent uh, lung injury. So I think those are the two ones that I'm most, most excited about, I would say. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. This is a wonderful hour. And thank you all for listening. We'll, we'll see you next time.